Our Heavenly Father, we take this moment to give thanks. We thank you that out of the mouth of babes, you have ordained praise. How beautiful it was, even for the ladies standing in those footprints, to think about uh, these keys and about the measuring thing. And so many of their thoughts go towards God and about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Lord, in just the last few moments, we've heard testimonies and we've realized that it's not by accident we are here. And when we realize that we have a sovereign God, we recognize that the Father that we got is the Father that you intended. Lord, I pray that through the dads that we have, whether they've been absentee or whether they've been present, I pray that we might learn from them, that we might learn what is beautiful and what is not, what is righteous and what is unholy. Lord, I thank you even as as Kirk testified about his own dad, how you took him from a lowly place to bless him and to make him rich with children and to give him the opportunity to pour and invest into the next generation. Lord, we thank you for that kind of a witness. And on this day, as we want to honor dads, I pray that you would raise up even new dads. We would pray that that, uh, whenever we see a little one in the womb, that we would remember that there's some man that is going to have the opportunity to not be a rolling stone, but to be a rock that would be able to point that child to Christ. Lord, I do pray that you will strengthen the family. I pray that you would enable us to get beyond the, the, uh, the same old, same old. I pray that you would help us to be godly dads, godly moms, godly families. We pray that the light that would shine forth from these institutions of the home might permeate into our communities, into our societies, into our schools. We pray that there will be greater opportunity to lift up Christ and to talk about his wonderful connection to the Father above. Lord, we thank you that there is hope for the rest of us that are remaining on this earth until we get to see the Heavenly Father. Lord, as I visited with Pat uh, Ungama yesterday... I'm reminded of how frail our lives are. As right now, her life is being helped along by a breathing machine, and the doctors are collaborating to try to figure out what to do. It's been two weeks since she's been awake. It's been a couple weeks since the tumor that was the size of a tangerine has been taken. Lord, it's tough to see her just there. And it's even more difficult to watch uh, her daughter by her side And to see how the daughter is looking up to her dad on this Father's Day. And seeing the great love that he has for his wife. Lord, I thank you for George's testimony. And I pray that you'll give him strength as he goes through these difficult days ahead. When there may be some opportunity for her to fully awaken. Um, We don't know what the brain surgery has done. Or whether there's even going to be an awakening. We don't know if it's malignant or not. There's so many unanswered questions. But Lord, I'm thankful for the one that is answered, that her faith was in Christ. And I pray that that might be true for everyone in this room today. Lord, as we think of the other surgeries and the other uh, procedures that are being planned, whether it's for cancer or whether it's for arrhythmia or whether it's for for replacements of of joints and things like that or hips, uh, we pray that your grace would be found sufficient for each of these dilemmas. Lord, and I pray that we would not be uh, slow to come to you to ask for your blessing. 
For if you can take care of our physical bodies and the physical things, our daily bread as it states in the Lord's Prayer, you can certainly take care of the harder things, which is forgiving us our sins and our trespasses and those who have trespassed against us. Lord, I do ask that you will minister to us, that you will lift us up uh, from any kind of despair. And on this day, on this Father's Day emphasis, I pray that we might fall even more in love with our Heavenly Father, that the love that we have for you would even extend beyond what little Chrissy said from one side of the stage to the other. I pray that our love for you will exceed all expectations. And that only happens when we look more full into your wonderful face. And the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles, we're going to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lot in the book of Corinthians. So if you're in your pew Bibles, it's found on page 1213. 1213. What a fascinating text that it's there. Uh, I was looking through, trying uh, earlier on, looking for a text that talked about the family unit in the New Testament. And this is one of the earliest texts that talks about a home after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I challenge you, maybe we can find out which family unit is named. They don't react. We don't actually know their first and last names or anything like that. But if you understand that Jesus ascended up to heaven in AD 33, after he had just been buried, after he had been resurrected, he was on the period of, for a few days on this earth, and then from the Mount of Olives ascends to heaven, and wow, he leaves the disciples behind, calling them now apostles, and the church is going to be growing like wildfire in Pentecost. Thousands are added as they continue on. They have great fellowship in Acts chapter 4, and you see the church expanding. We see the gospel going to different communities and different neighbors, and we find a little bit like when Cornelius gets saved in Acts 10 and his family, and there's a few other places. But on the missionary journeys, this is one of the first reports of what it looked like inside of a church, a church like ours, where people had come to faith. There had been a church planter that had come. Things were gathered. The saints were getting together, and that's what we're going to be looking at As we look at 1 Corinthians, Paul, the apostle, is writing this letter. He's writing it, the first epistle to the church at Corinth. And if you look at it, it's a 16-chapter letter, which means it's a pretty long letter. The reason he writes the letter is because he had a lot to say. (laughs) There's a lot of things going on in that church, and uh, it's certainly not a boring book. But this is an interesting text for Father's Day, Um, So here is verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Fun text. Let me unpack it for you and I believe you will be encouraged. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take this, this passage that none of us would have ever expected This first allusion to the family unit in the church. Oh Lord, I pray that we might find some truth that will transform us. I pray that you might inspire us and bring us to the place where we can join with the guy on the video. And we can give thanks. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It's 2016. It's Father's Day. How do people honor their fathers in the 21st century? That is a loaded question. Sometimes they give you a tie. This one's tough because it's a clip-on. I'm not used to clip-ons. But this one's kind of cool. It actually sings happy, happy. It's, it's, it's uh, from the Minions movie. Uh, makes you want to dance. That's one way. Hush up. Okay. Um, <laughs> how else do people honor their dads? Well, somebody came up with this idea of having a day to honor dads. Father's Day. It's usually, what, the third Sunday of June every month. And uh, now, interestingly enough, it, it's a reaction to Mother's Day. Mother's Day came first. Apparently, they're more important. And then uh, Father's Day was a, a leftover. In 1907, finally, somebody got the idea together that they were going to honor dads, and it was after a tragedy. In West Virginia in 1907, uh, a memorial service held for a large group of men, many of them fathers, who were killed in a mining accident. 1907. So it's just been over 100 years where our, our culture has kind of tried to acknowledge and to catch up with the honoring of moms. Now we want to honor dads, but we don't really know how to honor dads, do we? So according to some of the things, the proper way to honor dads is to send them a gift card or give them a gift. Uh, Gifts include sports items, clothing, electronic gadgets, outdoor cooking supplies, and tools for household maintenance. And they should include ties. Or as my son said, ties that the dad actually buys. Father's Day is relatively diff, uh, a modern function, and so a lot of people pick up different traditions. The one that is growing in significance is you go out to eat, so restaurants typically get fuller. Is this what God meant in the fifth commandment? Honor your father? It's kind of interesting to think about it, and as we apply it to us... Um, I wanted to make it another application, another level. We're in 2016. This is the very first Father's Day since the Supreme Court made its determination last year about the weekend of Father's Day. You all remember, they redefined marriage. And I was pretty fascinated how some of the language that they had to be able to redefine it. In the court's argument, it said... There is, uh, there is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is so much respected as in America. When the American retires from the turmoil of public life to the bosom of his family, he finds in it the image of order and peace. He afterwards carries, uh, he afterwards carries that image with him into the public affairs. Uh, and then they go on to be able to say, The court echoed de Tocqueville's, explaining that marriage is the foundation of the family and of a society without which there would be neither civilization nor progress. Marriage has long been a great public institution, giving character to our whole civil polity. This idea has been reiterated even at, as the institution has evolved in substantial ways over time, superseding rules related to parental consent gender, and race, once thought by many to be essential. See generally, and then they mention these other places about public vows. Marriage remains a building block of our national community. For that reason, just as a couple vows to support each other, so does society pledge to support the couple, offering symbolic recognition and material benefits to protect and nourish the union. Indeed, while the states are in general free to vary 
the benefits they confer on married couples they have throughout our history made marriage and they go on and on. It's interesting how the court was recognizing that the tradition that has brought us here. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be made one. So you get the marriage and then they're fruitful and multiply so they turn in from husband and wife to be mom and dad. That's the way it's been. Some folks really got upset over this last year. I want to be able to make the case that the issue of the erosion of the family is not because nine people had an opinion and the majority of them said that it can be redefined. The issue is not opinions, but it's the practices of people. And when you start looking around at the practice of people, oh, we don't want to judge, do we? But one of the first statements in the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul telling us about how the marriage unit was being redefined and practiced in the church. And it was accepted. Let me explain that to you as we go throughout this message today. And I wanted to be able to make it memorable, a little bit humorous, and all those kind of things. So when I was, I'm going to give my two points as titles of TV shows that had to do with families, that had dads in them. Now, I could borrow from a lot of places like the Brady Bunch. You know, there is three and three, and they came together. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was trying to bring up three children of her own. You know, and then they all come together to form the Brady Bunch. They taught us important lessons like don't play the ball in the house. There's also the Huxtables, now in disrepair because of Bill Cosby. But from the first episodes, people used to laugh. You know, they had the funeral for Rudy's little goldfish. Those of you that know these stories, they just bring back memories. The Huxtables over in Brooklyn. Some of you know the Sopranos a little bit better. I don't know Tony and his family too well. I'm more familiar with Archie and the Bunkers. There's a few. <laughs> you have the Barones. Everybody loves Raymond. You know, that dad. Uh, he has you in stitches in each one of those things with his mother-in-law and all those kind of scenarios. Uh, Roseanne and the Connors. Uh, we'll skip over her. How about the Ewings? You know, the Ewings from the TV show Dallas? And the, the Carringtons and all those kind of folks? Or, but everybody that's got some age to them knows Wally from Leave it to Beaver. June and Wally, or the Adams family, which kind of made it cool to make fun of parents that were a little different. Gomez, Gomez and Morticia. <laughs> or the Waltons. Good night, John boy. But you could just see that family, the depression couldn't get them down up on Walton's Mountain, not even World War II. You have all these different shows that, that give us images and glimpses of different families. Just going to... to some of the newer ones I haven't kept up on. The Arnolds, the Bellamy's, the Bradfords from Eight is Enough. I was from a family of eight, so I always remember those. Uh, the Bundys, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> the Cunninghams from the Happy Days. Or the Evanses from the Good Times and that Dynamite guy. Fred and the Flintstones. Of course, you got to have the Rubbles, too. Um, everybody knows the uh, family from the little house on the prairie. You know, they had the perfect little family, right? Or the Jeffersons who were moving on up. Uh, the Partridge family, we could go on a few more. Or even if I start whistling, 
you know, you know Andy. And you know how he was a dad. The two points that I want to draw for you to remember today is from one of the modern shows called A Modern Family. And the second one is the old show called Father Knows Best. Father Knows Best. Those are the two points of the sermon that capture what we get in Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In the modern family, we see the problem presented. We see by observation some things that are going on. A brokenness. In fact, I could go ahead and quote uh, that thing from uh, Houston. You know, Houston, we have a problem. As soon as you start looking at what Paul says... In this modern family in the first century, when he was going back and trying to help that church, their modern family was a mess. There was a problem here. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And so when you look at it, the problem is exposed and the problem has begun to be addressed. So if you're looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians 5, there are the two things that are exposed. There is a biological family problem and a theological family problem. I thought there was only one bad thing. Let's look at the text, if you will. It is, I'm going to read several verses, not just verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated by the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. That's the family unit. That's biological. And you are arrogant. Who are you? The you, Y-O-U, is not the family that's mentioned. It's not the husband and the son and the woman in the story, which we don't know a lot about her. It's not that family unit. It's different people. Right after he says it, he says, you are arrogant. Crazy. Who are the you? If you look back at the beginning of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, you're going to find that the you is is in verse 2 of chapter 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth... To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those who are called saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both as their Lord and as both their Lord and ours. Those are the people that he's speaking to. He's speaking to, he's speaking to saints. He's speaking to people like us. He says, "You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn?" Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as I am present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you go to church and my spirit is present. In other words, the things that I've taught you with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not Good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may have a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old, the leaven of malice and of evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The good things. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of of brother if he is guilty of this sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with them. For what I have to do, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil persons from among you. Now, the irony of this passage is that it exposes a biological problem, a biological family problem, and a theological family problem. And if you look at it, the biological problem was this. There is a father who is not being a good dad. Just plain and simple. I want to put the blame on the dad. Why, pastor, would you blame him? Okay, well, the story says, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to see it. It says there is something going on that is pretty raunchy. He says there is a man, which is a son, who is with his father's wife. I don't want to get into details. I'm thankful that the Apostle Paul doesn't tell us anymore. So I'll just tell you what he told us, because this is God's word. It's not to be hidden. You know, come clean at 15, come clean at 16, come clean whenever. And so you end up, you end up finding that there is a problem because the dad in this, he's married a, a lovely lady. I'm assuming she's lovely. Lovely enough that the son is paying way too much attention. And the dad isn't doing anything about it. Either the dad is dense and he doesn't see what's going on under his nose or the dad is complicit, or the dad is actually encouraging it. I don't even want to think like that. Because these people are churchgoers. They're in church week after week after week. They even take communion. I know it because, you know, that's what they are are being warned about in chapter 11 of this book. This has been going on and on and on. Dad, why don't you stand up and do something about it? Dad, Dad, why are you a roll over stone? You're not even taking this seriously. You're saying, oh, well, that's the next generation. Just aren't you up with the age? They're just exploring themselves. This son is just doing what seemed natural. You know, you might even say he's trying to figure out his identity or something. I mean, all of this stuff is so strange. Why isn't the dad doing something? Now, the biological family is a mess because it clearly says that this guy is a man who is with his father's wife. And it doesn't even identify him as a son because this is despicable. It, it's not even fun to dwell on. It's not even fun to unpack. It's not even fun as a preacher to preach on. And yet this is the very first problem that he starts to unpack with details because the passage has already been telling us that this church has some of its own troubles And I'll get into those in a few moments. Just know this, that there's sexual immorality going on the way that's outside of what God established. And since it's going on inside the church, I wanted to tell you it didn't matter what the Supreme Court of their day said. It just didn't matter. 
Because if the Holy Spirit is not bringing conviction to your soul and you're letting these kind of things happen, which are not even named among the pagans, you can go to other places, you can go to the false religions and they don't even do this. And you guys are Christians and you're doing that. It is not even tolerated among the pagans. What a biological problem. This father was not keeping his house in order. 1 Timothy 3. He could have never served as an elder in the church. What a mess. Divorce or death appears to have been part of the scenario. And even though Paul doesn't clearly explain it, it sounds as though this father has married a new girl. A younger bride, maybe. And the son is paying way too much attention. And I'll leave it at that. How pitiful, how sad. The modern family the modern family. The second part of this problem, though, is a theological problem. The theological family did not want to make it an issue. They didn't want to judge. They they wanted to tolerate. Now, if, if you were thinking about that, you would think they're in the 21st century too, but they're in the first century. These people are showing up at church and they're sitting there in the pews. I don't think they had pews here, but obviously they didn't even have church buildings yet. They were meeting in people's homes. The churches didn't start to get built into the 300s after Constantine was converted and his, and his mom and his wife thought it would be cool to have bigger places. That's when they started to build churches because the persecution was finally letting up. So at this point in time, they're meeting in different people's homes and so maybe they found a cozy place to be. I don't know all the details. I don't even want to go into that sort of thinking. But the theological family was welcoming these people to church, which you think is a nice thing. But week after week after week after week, nobody said anything. There's a theological family problem. What do you do about it? That's just the way it is. Let's go on to the next verse. Isn't that the way the modern world works? When you look at it, Paul comes back and he addresses these things. He says, I've heard this in a report. And he says, I'm going to address this by way of explanation. So the first thing you're going to find (laughs) after the theological family issue has been, he says, the church people should be doing something about it. And then on top of it, he says, the church leadership in a modern vernacular, we would say the session needs to lead. The session needs to lead. We can't have this sin, this glaring sin in the church go on as if nothing matters. Everybody seemed to be acquiescing and they thought this was Christianity. And Paul says, no, no, no. So the problem has been exposed. Now it's addressed. There was a report. Now this report comes to Paul and Paul is not just living down the road. It's not like he's just a couple of hours drive away. Paul's already left Corinth after being there for a year and a half to get that church started, putting leadership into place. He takes off and he's planting churches elsewhere. So how does a report get to him? You know, he took his phone and they texted him, right? Hey, Paul. Uh, oh, I got, a, I got a text from Chloe. Now, Chloe is the lady uh, who, in chapter 1, ends up giving the report. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how she got the report to him. But the report had to travel a long distance because he was far away. So it might have been that they actually got on a boat and went to find Paul and trace him down and get the message to him. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that this dilemma was, was going on and on and on. 
Chloe's report probably took months to get to Paul. So you can just figure that when the report gets to him where Paul is saying, hey, it's been common that everybody knows that there's people sleeping together in the church and nobody's doing anything about it. It's been going on. And Paul says, let's wait till the next presbytery meeting. No, he immediately gets the paper out and he starts writing because when he gets this report, it's a terrible thing. And as he writes it, he says to them this first issue. This is not even bad like, this is not even like that in the pagan, in the pagan secular world. And this is just scratching your head crazy. Is this the church of Jesus Christ? So you, you find out the problem. It was addressed. And Paul, by way of intimacy, wants people to know he has just spent some time, if you'll turn back to chapter 4, he's tried to explain some things to him before he launches into this personal attack. Wow, a personal attack? That's not what Christians do. If you look at the passage in chapter 4, you're going to find at the beginning in verse 1, he says, I'm a servant of God. I'm trying to be found faithful. He says, it's not a big deal what you really think about me, but I'm telling you anyway, it is a big deal to God because it matters if God says it's okay. He says, so because I'm doing what God called me to do, I'm about ready to launch into chapter 5. But you guys won't take it from me if I just start with chapter 5 and skip chapter 4. He discloses the issues, the purposes of people's hearts. If you look through there, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, verse 4, but I am not, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light now the hidden, hidden, bring to light the things now that are hidden in darkness. He will disclose even the purposes of the people's hearts. Now, all of this is preliminary before he gets to the problem. Isn't it interesting? Some people would say he's earning the right to be heard. I'm just simply trying to tell you, he's arguing, hey, God is, is the one sending me. I'm writing this because God put it on my heart to tell you. And so he explains that this is a big deal. This is a big deal to God. In verse 6, he says, uh, our pastoral teaching staff is here to help you not to go beyond what is scripture. He says, God's given grace that is sufficient so that there would not be a puffing up or a favoring of one person against another. Why does he say this? Because this is what people in the church are prone to do. And so he warns them. He says, God gives you this staff. I'm sending Apollos to be able to help you. I'm going to send Timothy as well. He's trying to set things up. And in verse 8, there's kind of a wow moment. You have everything you need. You're living like kings. He says, have you ever looked at yourselves? What do you need that hasn't been provided already? You know, a lot of us are trying to figure out, do we need a second home? Do we need a second car or a third car? Do we need this or this? How many Christians do you know that are suffering? Paul says, hey, you guys in Corinth, you have everything you need. He says, if you look at us, we're missionaries. We're working hard with our hands. We're trying to make ends meet. We're trying, and we're going to the next place and the next place. We're being spilt for, for God's purposes. And you guys live like kings. He says, I don't do this to shame you. But he says in verse 14 and 15, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but rather to make you aware or to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, though you have so many people giving you inputs, he says, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ. 
because I shared with you the gospel. And this on Father's Day is an interesting passage how it sets it up. I mean, it's really rare for the Apostle Paul to start talking about fatherhood to the church. But he says, I'm your dad. And, and now he's making the case to be able to answer, to answer the biological and theological problems of the church. He says, I'm your dad. I've preached to you the gospel. And so when I come to you and I tell you guys, I right, slap the back of your wrist. This needs to stop. Paul is trying to show the love of the Father that comes, to, comes through the love of, of him. It's really neat how all of these things come together. Now, having laid the foundation, I want you to be able to know that this modern family situation doesn't make life easier. And in transition, you might not, if you looked at the church in the New Testament in that first century, how many of you would want to join to take the new members class? I can see everybody signing up. You know, this is a great place to worship, right? The Apostle Paul that founded the church, he's moved on, and now this is the kind of people that live in the church. And then not only do they live in the church in their sexual activity, but the other people are also nice to them. Everybody loves one another. Now, that's a little scary. Got to be careful with the word love. Now, having laid that foundation, I want to move to the second. Father knows best. Point one is the modern family, and it leaves us in despair. Father's knows best is the solution that comes. It is the solution supplied by Scripture. There is a brokenness in the church, and instead of leaving it broken, the Apostle Paul says, I'm your father. I want to deal with it. I want to deal with the infection. This past week, I got an infection in my elbow. They, the big word was septic bursitis. Scared me when the lady at the doctor's office told me that. It just hurt, and they gave me a chill and stuff, and they basically said, you need to deal with the infection. So take some antibiotics regularly, and it's going to get better. It's getting better. The same is true in the church. Paul is saying, hey, there's an infection, and it needs to be dealt with. It's not going to get better on its own. The breakdown in the role of fatherhood is one that the family is needing to repair. Dads need to be dads. They don't need to be rolling stones. And now, in this particular church, there was a lot of dads that needed to step up because if you look at the list, I'm going to walk you through. In chapter 3, there was some frustrations because church members were regarding who they were going to follow. Paul, Peter, Apollos, the different people. There's divisions in the church, and he says, what a shame. In chapter 6, he goes on to say there's divisions within the church members over civil matters. You guys can't even get along with each other, and you're going to court. Chapter 6, verse 1. You don't want to do that. Then he goes on and and he says, he says, some of you are having divisions among your marriages, some difficulties. Some of you have married people that are not Christians. Some of you are not sexually satisfied in your marriage. Some of you have children that you don't know how to deal with from, you know, you're not training up the children the way you should go. All these divisions inside the family unit. They also had in chapter 11 divisions when they came together for the sacraments. Some people were pigging out on the food. Can't believe that. And then if you look a little later, some people were upset because they didn't have gifts like somebody else. He has better gifts than I do. And they used to get mad at that. And the way they got mad at it was they would put down that person and say, you're bad in other places. And so he comes back and in chapter 12 and in chapter 14, he says, look, the body is one body and you have different gifts and you're important and you're important and you're supposed to work together because that's a body. And then he said in chapter 15, some of you are fighting over eschatology too. You're divided over what's going to happen next. 
And he finalized it and he says, hey, as far as eschatology, that means the study of last things. He just nails it down in chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. And he says, everybody's going to be resurrected. No doubt about it. And you can see how he's trying to work with all these divisions. But the first one is the issue of the father that should have known better. Father should have known better. In chapter 4, chapter four, verse 15, we find he says, I am your father. I want to help you navigate these troubled waters. He says, I don't write this to shame you as I've already mentioned. I urge you then, brothers, follow my fatherly example. That's what he's saying. And because he comes gently and tenderly, then when he comes back and he does what Elise was talking about and he, and he gives you the spanking, you can love him for it. Even though after the video, you know who walks away with the tears. The solution is fatherly. The way to fix the problem in the Corinth church is for people to follow a father's example. I urge you, I beg of you, not the guides of all the other voices. Don't just listen to your friends that go to school with you or that are in your workplace or in your neighborhood. Don't just listen to the talking heads on TV, whether it's on Fox or CNN or MSNBC. You have many guides, but he says that's not the solution. Talk to the one that God has provided. Tell the Christian testimony. How did you get where you are? Paul was saying, I didn't get here by accident. God took me off my high horse. He humbled me, Acts chapter 9. And he called me to go and to help people, to be a father to them in the faith, and to be able to guide them. You can see that clearly in that passage. I am just fascinated through the gospel, all these things happening. And as your spiritual dad, let me show you a more excellent way. You know, those words are the introductory words to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Same book. What's 1 Corinthians all about? 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love. Chrissy couldn't have gotten it better. How do you measure love? That much. Paul is going to tell this same group of people, you've been arrogant, but let me show you a more excellent way. Though you do this and this and this, though you do great things, though you do church things that are exploits that are awesome, he says, if you don't have love, it profits how much? That was kind of lame. It profits how much? It's profitless. What have you gained if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? If there's no love there, you have nothing The more excellent way is to not lean on your own understanding, which we're all prone to do, but rather to trust the Lord and to lean on him. And if you go to Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he says, listen to your father and listen to your mother. Nothing's changed in God's economy because that's the way he set it up from the beginning. Your father's in the faith. Just like he taught Timothy and Titus, he's teaching us. The application is there. Paul is saying in this way of writing that there's only one church and it doesn't need to stay broken. It needs to be healed. And when you gather for worship in the presence of Christ, don't ignore the things that need to be dealt with. The illustration of the yeast is put in front of us. How much yeast do you need in order to have the bread dough rise? I only see a few of you that are cooks. Bernice is saying, just a little bit. (laughs) Do you understand He says, if you let sin stay in the church a little bit, what's going to happen? It's going to affect all of the dough. The encouragement that Paul is saying to the church at the beginning is don't just think that Christianity is acquiescing and tolerating. 
Christianity is addressing and dealing with. And the best way to deal with the sin, they said, is pretty harsh. He says, if they're going to keep in this sexual activity, where are they supposed to worship? Someplace else, because they're already worshiping something other than God. They're worshiping their idol of self-satisfaction and pleasure. They're not looking to Christ, the author and finisher of the faith. They're looking for secular satisfaction. And the son seems to have found it. Only temporarily. You see, because the gospel that, the, that, that Paul the father is giving, if you turn back over to chapter 1, you're going to see it so clearly. After Paul identifies who he's writing to, the, who he's actually calling arrogant, I want you to know that there's a shift in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that you don't have division. Make sure you work this through. He says, I want you to be united in the same purpose. And then he jumps down to verse 18, just a few verses later, and he says, for the word of the cross, which is crazy to everybody else who's perishing, it's to us who are being saved. It is the very power of God. And this is how God is going to destroy the things that break us down. He's going to bring to naught the other counselors who are telling you you need to do this and you need to do this. He's going to get rid of all that because when you go to the cross, you realize that you can't save yourself. When you go to the cross, you find out that there's no side that you can take. You're on the wrong side until you get forgiven and you're on Christ's side. Brothers and sisters, on Father's Day, I wish all of you could testify that your dad led you to Christ. What an awesome thing. Most of you can't. Those of you that are dads, some of you regret and are frustrated and probably pray every day that your children haven't met Jesus. They may have said the word. They might have even gone through the prayer if you repeated it with them. But they've never met the one who can forgive them. They only know about him. The issue here is the preaching of the cross, meeting the Jesus that went there, is where you see John 3.16 come to life. For God the Father loved people in this world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish only because he sent his only begotten son to take your place. That's the only means. Regardless of what culture you find yourself in London, in Orlando, like people this week have been thinking about, if you're in Abu Dhabi or in Beijing or wherever, there still is this universal truth that God established the family between one man and one woman for one lifetime, Genesis 2.24. If you can find another verse that changes it, please come show me. Otherwise, I'm sticking with that. The role of a father has not been diminished, even though every single father on the earth has been a sinner. Every person that's been a dad has been a sinner. Show me one exception. Not even Jesus was a father. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so when Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 comes up, and he says, obey your, or, or honor your father, he's, he's recognizing that they're fallen fathers, but you still honor the authority that God's delegated in the home. And fathers are not supposed to abuse that at all. In fact, just in a few verses before that, if you look, I think two verses before, when he says that the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, the word father shows up again. And it shows us that they're pretty crummy. Most dads have not set a good example. But when I look at Matthew 6, 
the Lord's Prayer, we're introduced again to the role of fatherhood. And he says, when you go to pray, our Father who is in heaven, regardless of the sinfulness of your dad, regardless of whether he taught you right or wrong or whether he did it just a little and not enough or whether he actually set a crummy example for you, you should be able to go to your Father in heaven as a child. And you'll know that he'll not turn you away. Our Father who art in heaven. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal sets it up so well for us. All of us have been prodigals. We all have gone our own way. We've all taken the blessings that God has given us, and we've gone to squander them. We've done what's right in our own eyes. We all rebel. We all do seem, we we try to get the, the riches of this life. And as Americans, sometimes we think we get to experience a few more than others. If you go on the mission field, you know what I mean. But not all of us have come to our senses yet to come back. The prodigal son didn't stay far away. He understood by grace, I'd rather be a doorkeeper with my dad. Brothers and sisters, if you know the heavenly father, it'd be better to be a doorkeeper in heaven than to be elsewhere. Even if you had the lowliest task in glory, it'd be great to be there. See, when you start to understand what matters A lot of these petty things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and in the light of his grace, in light of what the Father has already done for us. Some of us are still out there. We don't realize that we're wasting our life away. And I'm not putting down pig farmers. It's not about what job it was. It was that he was doing something that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. He had been satisfying his own selfish desires until God's Holy Spirit opened his eyes up to a wow moment. It's about being out of touch with the Father and his goodwill for us. So the Father fixed it. And that's what he can do for you today. He sent his only begotten Son. So now when he looks at you, there is no condemnation for you that have been covered by Christ's blood. There is no judgment that needs to come on you. And even though he's telling us that judgment falls on the house of God in the text in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, yes, the reason why people in the church are supposed to come alongside of you is because they love you and they're trying to keep you from doing the things that you would otherwise think are good. As a collective group, we're supposed to come and do the will of God. Iron sharpening iron, loving one another, confessing our sins one another, singing psalms and hymns and melodies, coming together to meet with God to hear the word exposed, and to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. You know all these scriptures. At least you've heard them now. You see, the beauty of how God works this together is that we are the family of God, and he is our father, and there's no grandkids. Are you one of his children? Dear Lord Jesus, as we conclude this message on this Father's Day, I thank you that you have revealed things to us